Okay, thank you very much. Please put your YouTube things away. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you. Good to be back here. I was here two weeks ago, of course. I nearly didn't get here. I thought last night. I came in from the United States last night, and I didn't have my proper uh, uh, PCR, the, the test, the COVID test. I had it taken on Thursday, but hadn't come through. But as I came to the airport, they didn't even ask me for it. And apparently, that's unusual. So I'm here. And uh, if you've got your Bible, I'm going to read you in a moment uh, from Galatians 5. I'm really looking into Romans chapter 7 and 8 with you this morning. But I'm going to read a way into that from Galatians chapter 5. But let me just remind you, if you were here two weeks ago and inform you, if you weren't, that we talked then about Paul coming into Ephesus and meeting 12 men who are described as disciples. It says that they believed, they had been repentant, and they were baptized. But Paul said something was missing, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They said, we've never even heard there is such a thing. And uh, they received the Holy Spirit and at that point, we're born again of the Holy Spirit, which is what the new birth is. And we talked about that. Paul wrote in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's not that you receive the Spirit when you become a Christian, but that is how you become a Christian, by receiving the Spirit. You become spiritually alive with the life of God that's implanted to us as John wrote, 1 John 3, 24, this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave to us. And I want to build on that a bit this morning because when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and in the life of any man, woman, boy, or girl who is willing to receive him, he does not come in order to change us but to replace us. I'm going to explain what that means. It becomes, as a phrase Paul used in Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, there's a new supernatural life indwelling me, which is the life of Jesus Christ lived in me by the Holy Spirit. And that is the source of the transformation and the godliness. But the old natural me remains the old natural me. Now let me read you then the verse I'm going to use as a springboard in Galatians 5 and verse 16. Where Paul says here, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I'm using the old NIV here. I don't like that term, sinful nature. It's not really a translation of the actual text. The word used there literally is the word flesh, not meaning the body, which is not intrinsically evil, of course, but meaning all that I am in myself, my natural me, apart from God. So he says, if you live by the Spirit, you're not gratified the desires of the natural you, the flesh, for the flesh, the natural you, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want to do, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What Paul is saying there is that there is a civil war going on in the soul of every person born again of the Holy Spirit. And the civil war is this. The flesh, the natural me, all that I am in myself, is fighting against the Spirit of God who's come to live within me, and the Spirit of God in me is fighting against this old natural self. And this is a relentless, constant, never-ending battle that is true for every Christian in this building this morning, 
And those of you at home who are listening in the comfort of your home, it's true for you. Let me read you something that Paul wrote in Romans 7, and this is where we're going to look mainly now, Romans 7 and verse, uh, and, and Romans 8. But let me read you in Romans 7 and verse uh, 15. Paul says there, Romans 7 verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate doing, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, my natural self, my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, does that make sense? Do you understand that? What he's saying is this. There are certain things in life that are good and they're right. I know they're good. I know they're right. And I want to do them, but I don't. And there are certain things in life that are wrong. I know they're wrong. They're bad. I know they're bad. And I say to myself, I will never do those things again. But you never guess what happens. I do them. Anybody here got that problem? Just raise your hand. Let's see how many honest people there are uh, around. Uh, there's a few dishonest ones, I suspect, or angelic ones that happen to have landed here this morning. It's a problem you've got. It's a problem I've got. I want to notice something interesting that Paul says in verse 17. He, he says there, uh, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. That sounds interesting. Bit of a cop out. In verse 20, he says something similar. He says, if I do, I don't want to do. It's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. That's a very convenient cop out, isn't it? If I do, I don't want to do. Oh no, it's not me. Oh no, no, it's not me. Sin living in me does it. So if I came to you at the end of the service, we got into conversation and suddenly I pulled back my arm, clenched my fist and punched you in the nose. And I said, oh, sorry, that wasn't me who did that. No, no, I didn't do that. That was sin living in me that did that. Would, would you accept that? Especially if I did it twice. Oh, no, that wasn't me either. That was sin living in me. You probably say, listen, chum, there's a bit of sin in me as well. Pow, and you probably thump me back. What is Paul saying? This sounds nonsense, doesn't it? What's he saying? Well, he's not talking there about sin as actions as such, but sin as a principle that he describes in verse 23 as the law of sin. He says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, I, I meant to bring something up with a bit of weight. Can you throw me something? Maybe my keys will do. Just my keys are right there. Would, would you mind doing that? Thank you. You can throw them. Are you not a good shot? Man, you're good at everything else, I thought, from what we heard before. Uh, if, I, if I take this set of keys and I let it go, it's going to fall. Not because I give it a push. I can push it the other way in actual fact, but because there's a natural law in the heart of the earth called gravity that says if it goes up, it's coming down. Now, says Paul, there's a natural law at work within me, which he calls the law of sin, a bit like the law of gravity. And unless we understand this, and I'll explain a bit more in a few minutes, unless we understand it, we're never going to understand ourselves. Because as Paul writes here in verse 18 in chapter 7, I know that nothing good lives in me. There's something in me that is broken. Not only broken, but has become a force that is all the time pulling me in the direction I don't want to go. And if we don't believe that, we'll try to refine ourselves. We'll hold on to the hope that maybe one day I'm going to change. We'll find ourselves making promises to God how good we're going to be starting today. But despite the greatest intentions, we will fail. 
But don't be too disappointed by that because you and I will never be bigger failures than the ones God already knows that we are. That all we're capable of really is, is failure in ourselves, of ourselves. Now, you may become disillusioned with yourself as I have become disillusioned with myself, but God never will. God is never disillusioned with us for the simple reason he doesn't suffer from any illusions about us in the first place. He knows exactly what we're like. He knows the corruption of the human heart. It's important we understand this, you see. Be, be very careful of blaming the devil for your sins. Uh, James wrote in James 1 and verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own desire he is dragged away and enticed. His own desire. He says in James 4 verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your evil desires of battle within you? And Paul says, the temptations I struggle with and the sin I struggle with are because I actually want to do them. And every sin you commit, and every sin I commit, you commit for one reason. You actually wanted to. Don't kid yourself. And say, oh, I don't know what happened there. You do know what happened there. You wanted to do it. <laughs> you see, temptation by definition is attractive. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation <laughs> by definition. I mean, I'm never tempted to walk in front of a moving truck. It's not attractive to me. I am sometimes tempted to push somebody else in front of a moving truck, <laughs> depending who it is. Because by definition, temptation is attractive. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, demons are credited with various powers, but they're never credited with moral power. There are uh, 32 references to demons and to evil spirits in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And they have all kinds of physical powers. They cause blindness, for instance, and dumbness. They can bring severe pain, give physical suffering. They can give a man unusual strength. They can cause somebody to go into convulsions. They can throw a man to the ground. They can cause insanity and madness. They can drive pigs into a sea. They can predict the future. You find all those incidents being attributed to demon possession, but they're never credited with moral power in the Gospels. Nobody ever told a lie because of a demon. Do you know why a person told a lie? Because they wanted to, to get themselves out of a fix. Nobody ever committed adultery because of a demon. Do you know why they did? Because they wanted to. I had a friend who was speaking at a church in the south of England on one occasion, and uh, he didn't tell me this, but somebody in the church told me this. And uh, at the end of uh, one of the meetings, a, a lady came to talk to him and said, would you pray for me? He said, certainly. What is your need? She said, I'm troubled by demons. He said, tell me more. She said, well, I have a demon of greed. I don't know the order in which he said these things, but this is the gist of what she said. I've got a demon of greed. I have a demon of pride. I have a demon of lies. I have a demon of envy. I have a demon of lust. And my friend said to her, you mean to tell me you have a demon of pride? She said, yes, and another demon of greed? Yeah, and another demon of lies? Yes, another demon of envy? Yes, another demon of lust? Yes. He said, that is remarkable. She said, why? He said, because I can do all those things all by myself. <laughs> I struggle with all of them. I don't have a single demon. He said, madam, your need is not exorcism. That's a cop-out. Your need is repentance. Your problem is you. Sin comes from within, which is why speaking about this in Romans 7, the living Bible paraphrases when he says, nothing good lives in me. That is, there's no sanctification in me. Uh, the living Bible says, I know I'm rotten through and through. Well, this is encouraging stuff, isn't it? You're, you're really glad you came this morning. This is just what you needed to hear. However, that is true. 
First thing a doctor has to do, if he's going to be any use to us, is make a proper diagnosis, and that isn't very pleasant. Tells you what's wrong with you. But then he says, now we know what's wrong with you. Let me tell you what the solution might be. And so Paul does that here in Romans 7, and then in, in Romans 8, these two chapters go together. Because if that is true, that old me is corrupt, something else is equally true, and that is that the Holy Spirit who came to live in you and live in me is the complete opposite of everything that we are by nature. The old nature that we have loves the dirt, unfortunately. The Holy Spirit who comes to indwell us loves the good. And hence this battle, Paul says, between the flesh, the old self, and the spirit. Let me read you a couple of verses from 1 John. Uh, where, where These verses have caused some difficulty to some people. Uh, and, but I think if we read them in their context, we, we'll understand them. 1 John 3 and verse 9, John says there, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's spirit remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, what do you make of that verse? Somebody born of God will not continue to sin. In fact, he cannot go on sinning. 1 John 5, verse 18, same letter. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, what do we make of those verses? The one born of God will not sin, cannot sin, does not sin, John writes there. Well, something else John says in the same letter, in 1 John 1, verse 8, writing to the same people, same message, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So on the one hand, the one born of God does not continue to sin. In fact, he cannot go on sinning. And so anyone born of God does not sin he says that in this letter. At the same time, he says, if anybody claims to be without sin, he's deceiving himself. He's kidding himself. Well, how do you reconcile that? I did meet a man, actually, on one occasion, who told me, after I'd been preaching somewhere, we chatted, he said that he hadn't sinned for 15 years. He said, uh, 15 years ago, God gave me a clean heart, was the language he used. God gave me a clean heart, and by the grace of God, I've not sinned since. Well, I didn't know what to say to him. Uh, hadn't met anybody who hadn't sinned for 15 years. So I, I said, that's wonderful. That's amazing. I said, uh, are you married? He said, yes. I said, is your wife here? tonight. He said, uh, yes, yeah, she is. I said, would you point her out to me? He said, she's the lady over there. I said, would you mind if I have a conversation with her? He said, what about? I said, I'd like to talk to her about your sinlessness. And he began to smile and he said, uh, sh she doesn't agree with me. <laughs> I said, really? Really? Why not? He said, she defines sin differently to me. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. I said, how do you define sin? He said, I define it. He had an answer in the verse in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, I think it is, verse 26, that says, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of forgiveness, there's no more sacrifice for sin, etc." So he defines sin as willful, deliberate, getting up in the morning and saying, today, I am going to have a really good sin. Which one am I going to do? <laughs> and going out and doing it. <laughs> I said, well, that's not my problem, you know. My problem is I say, today, I'd like to live a, a good day. I'd like to have a really good day, a really holy day. By 9 o'clock, I'm saying, God, I'm sorry. By 10, I'm so sorry. No, sin... Actually, by definition, is missing a mark. It comes from archery. You take an arrow, you shoot at a target, and you miss. It was called sin. That's where the word came from, missed by a 
half an inch and it's called sin. Missed by half a foot, it's sin. Half a yard, it's sin. Missed by half a mile, it's sin. Shoot in the opposite direction, it's sin. Because sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we are not, if you understand the difference. You miss a bus by a minute, you've missed it. Miss it by 30 minutes, you've missed it. Miss it by an hour, you've missed it. You don't congratulate yourself when you miss a bus or a train by a minute and say, that's fantastic, only missed it by a minute. (laughs) No, it's even more frustrating. God isn't interested in how bad we are, it's how good we're not is the issue. And sin is simply not being what we were designed to be. But the point is this. John says that uh, the one born of God will not continue to sin, He cannot go on sinning. He does not continue to sin. And yet he also says, if anybody claims to be without sin, he deceives himself. So that raises the question, who is born of God? And when you look into John, you see clearly he explains, the one who is born of God is Jesus Christ born into you. The new birth is the reception of his life. The life of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me read. Uh, in 1 John. For instance, chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony, and God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Why? Because the life that you receive is the life of the Son. It is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. Why? Because the life is in the Son. It's the Son who is the life. The life that comes to indwell me is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, verse 2, again, same letter. That which was from the beginning, says John, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared and we have seen it. We testify it to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, who's John talking about when he says we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, we have touched, this life appeared to us? Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking, of course, about Jesus. He was one of his disciples. And he says this is this one that we saw, touched, handled, had conversation with, ate breakfast with, camped out with, this life is the life that we receive. And so in 1 John 5.20, he says of Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. He is the eternal life. Now, there's a difference between the meaning of the word eternal and the word everlasting, as you probably know. The word eternal, in my Oxford dictionary, says the word eternal is to be without beginning and without end. The word everlasting has a different meaning. It means to be without end, but it presupposes a beginning. Now, if eternal is without beginning and without end, there's only one eternal life, and that is the life of God. And when the life of God is implanted in a human soul, we become everlasting because we are now united to that eternal life. We had a beginning, but we have no end. And that's the different ways the scripture uses that. But the life that we receive is the life of God. That's why Romans 6, 23, Paul says, the gift of God is eternal life. I used to read that to mean the gift from God is eternal life, that God is the giver. But actually, it's the gift of God is eternal life. God is the gift. He comes to indwell us. And if we needed further evidence um, from John in the same letter, he says in chapter three and verse five about Jesus, in him is no sin. And because in him is no sin, that one that's been born of God into us will not continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God in us, and we know the one born of God does not continue in sin. And so, this is the sinless life of the Lord Jesus that comes to indwell us, but he comes to indwell an old life that does sin and will sin, 
and whose instinct is to sin. Now, here's the dilemma then that Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Let me read you again part of what he said in verses 15. I'm going to read down to verse 24. And I want you just to listen carefully to a recurring word. There's a recurring word. It comes up repeatedly. And I want you to listen carefully to see if you can get it. <clears throat> he says uh, there in verse uh, 15. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do what I hate. I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that isn't my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of law of sin and work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Anybody get the word? I tried to help you a bit. 38 times. I, me, my, I what? I desire what is good. I hate what is evil. But it's all I, I, me, me, I trying to live a life that I cannot live. Trying to live a life for God, a life for Jesus, and I cannot do that. That just makes me a phony because I sing all wonderful things on Sunday and I live in the pit on Monday. And then he comes to the conclusion in verse 24. I mean, 38 times. I, me, my, my, e, my, I, e, my. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Now listen to this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Not what will rescue me. Not is there a technique. Is there a method? Is there a program I can follow? Is there an experience I can have? He says, no, who will rescue me? And he answers his own question by saying, thanks be to God, there in verse 25, thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, it's not something that I can try and follow and muster and make happen. It has to be someone who is it is Jesus Christ who comes to live in me and Two verses later, chapter 8, verse 2, he says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. There's this law of sin, like the law of gravity, pulling me down. And what can I do? Who can who will rescue me? Is there somebody? Yes, there is. There's somebody, and the life and the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets me free from the law of sin. So there's two com, com, conflicting laws. The law of sin, like gravity, the law of the spirit of life in Christ that sets me free. Let me, let me illustrate this to you. Some years ago, I was conducting a, a week of meetings, a week-long Bible convention in the city of Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, I was speaking each night from John 14, 15, 16, 17, some of you will know this is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And he says to them in chapter 14 that I am in my Father and my Father is in me. We are living in union together and the words I speak to you are not mine. Rather, he says, it is the Father living in me doing his work. So I as a man am living in relationship with my Father and what you hear me say and what you see me do, don't applaud me for it because I didn't do it. It's my Father in me who's doing it. And on three other occasions, Jesus said in John's Gospel, I myself can do nothing. I can only do what the Father's doing because what you see happening is the Father at work in me doing things through me, he said. That was in chapter 14. Then chapter 15, he said exactly the same thing to his disciples. 
you abide in me and I will abide in you. As I abide in my Father, my Father abides in me. And the words I speak is he speaking through me. And if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear fruit for without me, you can do how much? Nothing. As much as Jesus said he could do without his Father. So saying that the Christian life is not, you know, now you're saved, you're on the way to heaven, now try and live according to Christian principles or Christian lifestyle or something silly like that, because you can't, is living in union with Christ. He's in us, we're in him. And apart from him, we can do nothing. We can make a lot of noise, we can be fully involved in church, but we won't accomplish anything of lasting fruitfulness. So I was talking about this, that was the theme and uh, on the Wednesday night, we began on Sunday, we're going through to Friday night. On the Wednesday night, I think it was, a young man, about 30, came to me and he said, you know, I've been a Christian now for three or four years. I've never heard this before. I said, does it make sense? He said, I don't know. I said, well, uh, have you been looking at this text? Yes, he said, but I thought, you know, being a Christian was now committing myself to live for Christ, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, I said, does it work? He said, no. So he said, um, if what, you say, what you're saying is true, if that, what Jesus says here is how you've understood it, what do I have to do? Because he said, I'm not just a zombie who says, well, I'm in Christ and he's in me, so just stand back and, and all kinds of things will suddenly happen. I said, you're exactly right. He said, what do I have to do to make this work? I said, well, we've got two more nights. Come back tomorrow night. You might be asking your question a bit too early. He said, okay. Next night, he was there, came to me at the end. He said, listen, I, 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 to be honest, he said, I'm really more, even more excited tonight than I was last night about it, but I still don't know what I have to do to make it work. I said, come back tomorrow night. He said, I can't. I'm working tomorrow night. He said, could we meet tomorrow for breakfast and chat? I said, well, I'd love to, but I'm speaking at a businessman's meeting in the morning, and you can come and join me if you like, but uh, we won't have much time to talk personally because straight after that, I'm going to the Bible Institute of South Africa, it's called, which is a college there in Cape Town. I'm going to go and speak at their chapel after that. And then after that, I'm going to the YWAM training base. I'm going to be talking to their, stu having lunch there and talking to their students. I said, I'm not really going to be free until about four o'clock in the afternoon. He said, well, that's when I start work. I said, I'm sorry. I'm not sure we're going to better meet then. He said, actually, actually, you can come to work with me if you like. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I'm a pilot. I fly a helicopter. And every Friday afternoon, I have the same job. That at 5 o'clock or 4.30, where it was, 4.30, I take up a policeman and a radio announcer and Friday night, all the traffic's leaving Cape Town. We fly around the city for about 90 minutes during the peak rush hour. And uh, from the helicopter, I can see what is going on, where the congestion might be, any accidents that might occur. And the cop who's sitting with me looks down, reports that back. And every 15 minutes, the radio announcer gives a traffic report from the helicopter on the, on the radio. He said, uh, for me, it's the most boring thing I do. It's two hours just going around in circles. And uh, he said, but there's a spare seat in the helicopter. Would you be willing to come? And then we can chat. I said, I would love to come. Even if we don't chat, I'd love to come and fly around Cape Town in a helicopter. He said, okay, well, if you can come down to the helipad at about four o'clock, which is down in the Cape Town docks, um, you'll have to sign a paper to say I'm not responsible for you and a few things like that, and then we can go. So I said, okay, I'll be there. So four o'clock, uh, I turned up at the Cape Town docks and there was the helipad and I got out of the car, somebody took me there, got out of the car and there was this big sturdy looking helicopter in the foreground on um, wheels, big shaft coming from the center, big rotary blades on top, big thick tail, big blade at the back. 
looked so seated, maybe a dozen people. I thought, that's a pretty sturdy helicopter. And we walked around it. And there on the other side was what looked like a glass bubble on skis <laughs> with a little shaft coming out of the top about the size of a microphone stand, propeller on top, a wire mesh tail, and a little one at the back. And it was chained to the ground. And I said to my friend who met me when I arrived, I, I said to him, which of, which, of, which of these is a helicopter? He said, the little one. I said, the little one? <laughs> Why do we go on the big one? He said, we don't need to go on the big one. We're going to go on the little one. I said, but that's so small. It was like just a glass bubble. You could look down through your feet. I, I said, it looks as though you don't get into that. It looks as though you put it on. <laughs> He said, look, it's totally safe. I fly it all the time. I said, man, it doesn't look like that to me. So we went in to get a cup of tea. He wanted to have me and sign a document. And, and I said to him, C can you tell me how it works? I'm not used to this. Uh, how does it work? Not flown a helicopter. He said, well, you know, there's some competing, competing forces, some conflicting forces. There's, there's, there's weight which holds the helicopter on the ground and lift which raises it up and there's thrust which moves it forward and drag which holds it back. And so what you've got to do is create an environment where the lift is stronger than the weight and the thrust is stronger than the drag. And you see those blades on top? They're slightly angry. They begin to spin. They create a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. The aircraft will lift up. The helicopter will lift up into it, etc., etc. And, and he began to explain all this kind of thing. And I tried to look intelligent and say things like, yeah, uh-huh, okay, right. <laughs> And then when he finished, I said, well, well thank you, in as much as I've understood that, but um, what do I have to do to make this work? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, do I have to flap anything? He said, flap anything? What are you talking about? I said, well, you said that, that weight and lift are in competition. I'm going to add weight. So can I do something to help? He said, you're joking, aren't you? I said, you know something? You've just explained to me what I've been trying to say this week. But you've just explained it beautifully. And when I've explained that there's, well, actually, I, I, I showed him uh, this verse in Romans 8, 2, which I had in my pocket, my New Testament in my pocket. I said, listen to this. Let me read it to you. I said, it says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin is a bit like the law of gravity, pulls you down. You've just talked about that. But there's another law that competes with the law of sin pulling you down, which is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets you free, which is called lift. And I said, you know, Paul must have been sitting in a helicopter when he wrote that verse, <laughs> because he just explained what you're saying to me. He said, no, nah, I won't be as simple as that. So I said, look, you said to me all week, what do I have to do? And I said, you know, maybe I'll explain that tomorrow. I'll come back tomorrow. Now, I said to you, what do I have to do? You say, you're being silly. We know there's a power here that's not you. You will be in the aircraft, and in the aircraft, what becomes true of the aircraft becomes true of you, and the aircraft will set you free. Anyway, we took off. We flew around. Up there, traffic wasn't especially busy, so he showed me some sights and all kinds of things while we were waiting for some build-up. And uh, we eventually landed, and I said, you know, you've been demonstrating the whole time what I've been trying to say this week, that you left your natural self, cannot live the Christian life anymore, and you can jump up into the air and flap around. You can't do that. But there's another power, another life. In the New Testament, it's the life of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that sets us free. Here, it's the it's this law of aerodynamics that sets you free from the law of gravity. And, and, and the point is this, that when that helicopter takes off, gravity doesn't give up and say, oh man, that's no one's got away. We'll just let that one go. You know, the law of sin doesn't give up in your life. In fact, the law of 
gravity remains totally committed to smashing that aircraft to the ground at the first moment of opportunity, the moment that propeller, if it stopped rotating, gravity has got you and you're down. And in the same way, that old age doesn't get better. You're not going to be better when you're 80 than you are now when you're 30. You'll be the same old you. Of course, life will be a bit different. But the same old you with the same old potential, that old corrupt nature. But the measure to which the life of Jesus Christ is preeminent in you and the measure to which you are trusting his presence in you to be your life and your strengths is the measure to which you'll fly. You see... Never ask God to give us strength. The scripture never tells, speaks in that language. It says things like, the Lord is my strength. That's different to giving it to you. You know, please help me to get a bit of strength going here. I mean, look at a lot of verses. I jotted some down here. Exodus 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Psalm 118, The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. Isaiah 12, the Lord, the Lord is my strength. Isaiah 33, be our strength every morning, O God. Habakkuk 3, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. An aircraft doesn't give me the ability to fly. When I flew in from Chicago last night, the aircraft, the helicopter, the the, the airplane there, didn't give me the ability to fly. It was my strength. It was the aircraft that flew me here. I was in the aircraft, and so it is with Christ. When we're brought into him, we're united with him, as he live in the two operative things, and I'll give you them very quickly from Romans 8. The two operative things are obedience and trust, the two things that are operative in in our experience of this, that as we obey what he tells us to do, trust who he is, that he is at work, and he works in a multiplicity of ways. For instance, Philippians 2, God works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. You find your desires turn to what is good. He works in you to will for his good pleasure, his good purposes. And, uh, but let me just go quickly back to Romans 8. So what is our responsibility? My friend was right. What do I have to do? No, we're not a zombie. Don't just sit passively back and everything happens. We are active in this. But here in Romans 5, Romans 8 and verse 5, let me read you verse 5. It says, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. So notice the place of the mind there. He says, if you live according to the flesh, your mind is being taken up with the things of the flesh. If you live according to the Spirit, your mind is taken up with the things of the Spirit. I think I said last week that the word repent, which is, Translated from a Greek word in our New Testament, metanoia, which is made up of two words, meta to change, noia, the mind. I said last night, the repent, last week, the repentance, or two weeks ago, whenever it was, the repentance is not something we feel or something we do, it's something we think. It's a change of mind. And so he says, that this act of repentance whereby you become a Christian becomes an attitude of repentance whereby we be the Christian we have become when our minds are set on the things of the Spirit of God, which is why you cannot live the Christian life without your mind becoming instructed in the Word of God. How does a man keep his way pure, David asks. Good question. Answers it by guarding it according to your Word. Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you that we're, our minds are taken up with the things of God, the word of God. And uh, Paul said in, in Romans 12, verse two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now he's not saying that it's just a psychological process. He's already talked about how we're brought into union with, with Christ, how we're justified and indwelt and sanctified and so on. But he says in chapter 12, now, as to living this life out, you're transformed by renewing your mind. Your mind is being fed with truth. 
with Christ, with his word. No time to say more about that. I'll just sum that up with the last one now in the next minute. But in verse six then, he goes on to say, the, sin, the mind of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. A sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sin nature cannot please God. Now notice the word he uses there, talked about your mind is submit. Natural mind does not submit to God. And to God's law, let me link these two words, submission. I change that to a word we use more usually, more often, the word obedience. Obedience and dependence are the two things that cannot be separated. That we obey what God tells us to do. We are actively obedient. Our will is involved, our intentions are involved, but our act of obedience is in the context of dependence upon the Spirit of God. We obey what he says, and at the same time, in obeying him, we're trusting who he is to be our strength. Obedience and trust are like two wings on an aircraft, if you like. Which wing is the most important wing on an airplane? (laughs) Well, pretty obvious it needs both, doesn't it? Obedience without trust leads to legalism. Legalism always leads to judgmentalism, etc. Obedience without trust leads to legalism. Trust without obedience leads to unhealthy kinds of mysticism where you're not anchored in obedience. But obedience and trust together is dynamism. We fly. And the Spirit of God, as we obey Him and trust Him, as a work in us in such a way that he begins to show his own fruit and his own character and his own presence. We don't see that, of course. We're the last person to see what God is doing in our own lives. And we never look into a mirror to see if you're looking Christ-like today. <laughs> Am I like Jesus today? Ooh, look at this. No, you'll never see that. You'll see the battle, the warfare. One story to finish with, a man had a big influence on my life when I was young very godly man, and uh, his name was Alan Redpath. He wrote a lot of books, and some of you may have come across him. And when he was in his 80s, he was, had a stroke, two strokes. He was in hospital. Hillary, my wife, and I went to visit him. And it was just a couple of weeks before he died, and he was lying, actually, he was in a wheelchair by his bed and we came into his room. And he said, I've never known such spiritual warfare as I am experiencing in this wheelchair. There are things I thought I'd dealt with years ago and they're back. I did not know my mind was so dirty. And I felt embarrassed. I didn't know what to say to him. So I said something silly like, well, you've given the devil a hard time you know, in your life, so now you're weak, he's kind of putting the boot in. But that didn't help him, of course. <laughs> but he was despondent, talked about the disappointment of his own heart. And then we prayed before we left. When we prayed, his voice became strong. It was very frail in his wheelchair, and he talked to God as somebody he knew because he did know him. We left, went down the corridor. We'd been asked to leave at a certain time because some nurses had to attend to him, and as we walked down the corridor, we passed the nurse coming the other way. And I said to her, thank you for letting us in. Uh, I said, uh, you look after him, won't you? She said, oh, yes, we look after everybody here. I said, I'm sure you do. But I said, he's a very special man. And she stopped. We were walking past. She stopped. She said, you're right. He is special, isn't he? I said, well, we think so, of course, because we know him. She said, no, no. So the nurses were discussing this the other day, and we were saying that we love working with our Redpath. We all think there's something different about him. I said, what do you think is different? She said, I don't know. 
but she said, we were having a meeting in the staff room the other day and somebody brought him up. And one of the nurses said, whenever I spend time with Alan Redpath, I come away feeling clean. And this nurse said to us, when she said that, we all said, that's exactly what it is. There's something about him that's unusually clean. And as we walked back to our car, we thought, isn't that interesting? Here's Alan, I've never known such battle. I'm experiencing this wheelchair. I didn't know my mind was so dirty, so corrupt. And she says, what is it about him that's so clean? You see, what she saw was Jesus in him. What he saw is what you and I see in ourselves. When we get introspective, we see that old nature. And it's a battle, and it's discouraging. But as Hebrews says, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we, as Second says, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. And you're, not, you're the last one who's ever going to see it. But other people see it. So the Spirit of God comes to live within us. He comes to live the life of Jesus in us, but he comes to live alongside an old nature that's corrupt. He doesn't come to patch it up or to sanctify it. That is to be, this is another subject, Romans 6, crucified with Christ. Your old self has been crucified. We haven't time to talk about that, of course. But it's dealt with. Don't take it too seriously because it's dealt with. It's already been sentenced. But as we allow the Spirit of God, the law, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus to set us free from the law of sin as we have our minds fixed on the things of Christ, as we obey him and we trust him, and he works through us. To the extent that, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 5, 16, about you're the light of the world, he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Not see your good deeds and write a book about them or take a picture of them. See your good deeds and they don't even think about you. They see your good deeds and praise your Father. Why? Because this is the real thing. This is the Spirit of God in this person's life. And that's the Christian life. That's what the folks in Ephesus had failed to find and discover when Paul came along two weeks ago that we talked about. And this is the life that he has for you and the life he has for me. And we live every day as a fresh day. Whatever happened in the past, you can't bring that in as capital to today. Today we say, Lord, I live today in fresh dependence on you and in obedience to you. And he works and he produces his fruit in us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I didn't ask what time I had to finish. Let's pray. Father, we are deeply grateful this morning that we're not people who joined your fan club, folks down here trying to make sense of a life by trying to copy Jesus or something, but that Jesus himself has come to live within us. Thank you. You are our strength. You are our life. And we know mingle with that old nature, that conflict, that battle. We know that that dilutes the beauty of the Lord Jesus in us, but thank you that you also express yourself in us in ways that show something of your loveliness, kindness, gentleness, goodness, love. And we pray we'll be people who learn to live every day in humble dependence on you and obedience to you and leave the consequences then to you what it is you want to do in us and through us. Pray you'll encourage each of us in this, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.